When we moved out to New Jersey, Heather and I, we made an, a pact, an agreement, that we would try to see as much of the East Coast as we could while we were living out there. We had three years. We didn't know how much longer we were going to live out in the East Coast, so we decided we need to see as much of it as possible. One of the more unique trips was during the fall of my last semester in seminary. Heather found through Airbnb a treehouse that could be rented out throughout the, for a weekend in the northern part of Vermont. The treehouse was quaintly named the Tiny Fern Forest, and it was owned and operated by a retired couple who had that on their property. And they would rent it out to guests most weekends of the year, that is, unless they were doing something else. The treehouse was so popular, in fact, that we had to book our stay there a year in advance. So we had to fill out an application describing who we were, and we found out that the reason why they built this treehouse in the first place was so they could meet interesting people from all different parts of the world. And they really did have people coming from all different parts of the world to this tiny little treehouse in the northern part of Vermont. And apparently we made the cut because I was a seminary student and she was, and my wife Heather is a nurse. That was apparently interesting enough to get us into this world-renowned treehouse. So when our weekend finally arrived, we set off on the seven-hour drive from Princeton, New Jersey, to the tiny little town of Lincoln, nestled in the Green Mountains of Vermont. And from where we were staying, we could look out and we could see the Green Mountains just as they were starting to change colors to those famous northern New England fall colors. And we could also see Mount Abraham, less than a mile from where we were staying. And so after our first night in the treehouse, the next morning we got up relatively early, and headed out to hike a trail that would lead us to the summit of Mount Abe. Now, as I told you all last week, I am not an outdoorsy person. You heard my misadventures in the canyon in Colorado. Like when Heather asked me if I want to go camping sometime, my response is always, I want to want to camp. Like, I wish I had the desire to camp. That's the first question that needs to be asked is, do I have the desire to camp? And you all have been suggesting little city trails here and there in different parts of this area, uh, spaces that I can go get maybe 30 minutes of fresh air, and that would be just enough for me. At that point in my life, too, I was in terrible shape. But we were in Vermont. It felt like it was something that we should do to spend some time in the Green Mountains to hike to the summit of Mount Abe. And Mount Abe is not the tallest mountain in Vermont, and we picked it for that reason, and we even picked one of the trails that was for novice hikers. The whole thing, the whole hike was supposed to take three hours to the top and then back down. So Heather and I got there, we parked our car, and we started hiking up this trail to the summit of Mount Abe. And I'm expecting this to be fairly easy, not challenging at all. But as we start hiking, I realize that this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. My lack of physical fitness was really starting to take its toll. I would walk just a little bit and I would have to stop. My, my legs were screaming. I was out of breath. And to make matters worse, it seemed like every time I would take a break, I would be passed by by some native Vermonters in their Patagonia fleeces, doing the sort of thing that people in Vermont, you think people in Vermont would do on the weekend. We got to this middle section of the hike, and there was a little shelter, and I really wanted to turn around and go back down. I wanted to call it quits right there on the side of the mountain. I was sore. I was tired. I wasn't prepared for what the hike actually required of me. But Heather, my better half, says we need to keep going. We have this one opportunity in Vermont. We need to hike to the top of this mountain. So I continued forward. 
And as we got closer and closer to the top, people would pass by and they would see my sweaty red face. They would hear me wheezing and gasping for air and they would say unprompted, you're almost there, just a little bit further. Several rock scrambles later, we made it to the summit of Mount Abe. And Sandy, if you want to pull up that picture, you can see us there. There's the visual proof that we actually made it to the summit of Mount Abe. Happy in that photo, right? You can take it down now. (laughs) Standing on the mountain was an amazing experience. There was no more hiking, no more climbing, just a, a chance to stop and to take a seat and to look around us. The air was even different on the top of the mountain. The hike up, the air was was unseasonably warm and humid, but there on the top of the mountain, the air was cool and crisp and clear. And there was even a wedding taking place on top of that mountain. Those are people who are really committed to hiking, and they're so committed that they made their bridal party hike the mountain. The view was absolutely breathtaking. We could see for miles in any direction. We had an even better view of the green mountains and all the fall colors just as they were starting. There at the top of the mountain, it was a moment of peace and calm. It was a moment of joy. It was a moment to stop and to rest after the long journey up. This morning, we find ourselves on the mountaintop with Jesus. We, along with Peter, James, and John, witness what's known as the transfiguration of Jesus. We find it right smack in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And it stands out not only for its dazzling luminescence, but also for how Mark tells the story. Mark is known for his quick-paced gospel. Mark's favorite word is immediately. Jesus is a man of action. He has little time to stop for too long. But here, Mark stops for longer than usual. He takes time in telling us the story. He wants us to to stop and to pay attention. Stop and stay a while, Mark seems to be saying. It's a strange story, to be sure. It sounds more like a, a dream than an actual event. It reads more like a vision than it does the recordings of actual history. Peter, James, and John, the three that make up the innermost circle of Jesus' disciples, journey with Jesus up to the mountain where he is transfigured before them. Jesus becomes radiant. His skin is illuminating with the light and the glory of God. His clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone could possibly bleach them. Matthew and Luke also include their own versions of this story. So it was apparently important enough for the three of them to tell us this story. But it's a strange story, right? What are we supposed to do with a story like this? How are we supposed to make sense of it? As one commentator states, when has the idea of a brilliantly glowing holy figure made sense anyway? The transfigured Jesus isn't supposed to be figured out. And I think that actually helps us understand what this story is all about, that the fact that we're not supposed to fully understand it actually helps us to gain some understanding. This mountaintop experience, as I see it, reminds me a lot of what Celtic Christians call a thin place. Some of you may have heard of a thin place before. A thin place is where the imaginary veil between heaven and earth is so thin that you can see through it. A thin place is where the the chasm that seems to separate us from God is closed to such an extent that we can almost just step over into the next realm. It's where God, the holy other, becomes God, the intimately near one. It's where the ordinary ground beneath our feet becomes 
holy ground. The poet Charlene Sledge describes it this way. Thin places, both seen and unseen, where the, the door between the world and the next is cracked open for a moment and the light is not all on the other side. The light is not all on the other side. The light bursts forth from Jesus. It is not all on the other side this morning. In a thin place, we feel especially close to God in a way that is different from the rest of our lives. They are interruptions in the regular, everyday, ordinary flow of life. To be sure, God is with us at every moment of our lives, but thin places are reminders of that fact. They are reminders that there is nowhere in our world where God is not. What makes a thin place a thin place is not necessarily its location, but the experience. So for some of us, we may experience the nearness of God in nature in places like the summit of Mount Abe, or sitting quietly on the beach, or hiking through the forest. We might experience God in a place where we can look up and see all the stars in heaven. But some of us may experience the nearness of God in explicitly sacred places, places like soaring cathedrals or here in weekly worship. Thin places are not confined to these locations, though. What might, might make something a thin place for you may not make it a thin place for somebody else. Where we might feel close to God, someone else might feel rather far away from God. And God can feel especially close in the strangest and most unexpected places. I remember standing around the hospital bed of my grandpa as he took his last breath, standing there with my family members, that place of losing someone that I loved, and remembering how close God felt in that moment. And if you talk to my wife, Heather, who's been an ICU nurse for the last 10 years, she'll talk about how close God seems to be in those moments of death, those moments of losing those that we love. It reminds me of words that I often speak at funerals, words that are found in our Presbyterian book of confessions, that in life and in death we belong to God, that God holds us in this world and in the next. When Axel was born, my son Axel, he had pneumonia, and because of where we lived, we were 90 miles from the closest NICU. So three days into being parents, we had to watch him be uh, transported by ambulance down to the NICU. And we spent that week there in the Ronald McDonald house while he was treated with a round of antibiotics. It was a really rough entry into parenthood. And I remember trying to go to sleep in Ronald McDonald house and remembering how close God felt in that moment. We might experience a nearness of God in seemingly secular and profane places. We might find God especially close as we sit and talk with those that are our friends, those that we love in, in bars and restaurants or at their house. Something that I think that we're all looking forward to getting back to at some point, hopefully soon. What makes a thin place a thin place is that we can experience the light and the warmth of God bursting into our lives in an, an unusually close and intimate way. It's a place where all the light isn't on the other side. Thin places are gifts. They are momentary glimpses into the presence of God. Moments where all the light isn't on the other side, but it is shining out into our reality. What makes a thin place a thin place, too, is that it is momentary. It's not a place that we can stay forever. We may want to hold on as tightly as we can to that close experience of God, the nearness of God. 
Peter, too, wants to live in this moment as long as he can. Joining Jesus in this moment are two of the greatest and most revered figures of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And incidentally, they, both of them had their own experience of the thin place, Moses meeting God in the burning bush and Elijah meeting God on Mount Horeb in the sound of sheer silence. What Peter wants to do is to cling as tightly as he can to this moment. He says to Jesus, let's build three shelters, let's build three houses, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He wants to to build some real estate on the mountaintop. He wants to live in that moment forever. He wants to to stay in the light-soaked presence of God for as long as he can. But as soon as Peter says that, as soon as he tries to hold on to that experience, the moment is over. Moses and Elijah are gone, and Jesus is back to looking like his usual self. And to me, that is one of the hardest things about thin places, about mountaintop experiences, is that they don't last, that they are momentary, that they are just a peak behind behind the veil, and we cannot stay in those moments forever. And it's always followed by a journey back down the mountain, back into ordinary life. When I was in preaching class in seminary, one of the things they taught us was that when we are preaching on any particular story, we should always look at what happens before and what what happens after the story. It helps us gain some understanding about what the story is actually about. So what happens on either side of this mountaintop for these three disciples? Just before these disciples have this mountaintop experience, Jesus tells them that he is heading towards Jerusalem where he is going to be crucified. It's an incredibly difficult thing to hear. It's also not the thing the disciples thought they were signing up for when they started following Jesus, thinking he was the Messiah. They were expecting some sort of conquering hero who would restore their nation to its glory days. But a crucified Messiah, no one signed up for that. Peter, who always leaps before he looks, Peter, who enjoys the taste of his own foot, tells Jesus, hey, that's not going to happen, not on my watch. And Jesus rebukes Peter. He calls him Satan. It's a tense exchange. And then there after the mountaintop, as they make their way down, the disciples find themselves once again in the middle of endless human need. As they come down the mountain, a father comes rushing up to Jesus and asks for healing for his son. Difficult conversations on the way up the mountain, sufferings in the realities of the world as they come back down. So is it any wonder that Peter wants to build a place to live on the mountaintop? Reaching the summit of Mount Abe made the difficulty of the climb worth it. It was an experience that I treasure. It was an experience that I tried to enjoy as much as I possibly could. I I figured I'm not on mountaintops all that often, so I should try to enjoy this as much as I can. But I knew that I couldn't stay on the mountain forever. We had to go back down. And the climb back down proved to be even more difficult than the climb back up. Our bodies had had a chance to rest, and now the soreness was really beginning to set in. And rock scrambles, I found out, are a lot harder to climb down than they are to climb up. There were points on the way back down where I didn't think I was going to make it back to our car. But obviously I did, because I'm standing here in front of all of you. (laughs) Our experience of thin places is often surrounded by the difficult realities of life. Difficult conversations, a global pandemic, endless opportunities to care for a hurting world that is filled with need. 
The mountaintop is an oasis in the desert. It's a, a sunny day that breaks apart the usual cloudiness of the Michigan winter. It reminds us that the light and the love of God is still seeking an entrance into our world. The disciples' experience of the transfigured Jesus and all of his dazzling luminescence wasn't simply meant to be a privileged moment for them as three individuals. It was so that they could become a sort of thin place for others. The disciples still had a lot to learn, to be sure, especially in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are notoriously slow on the uptake, notoriously slow in understanding who Jesus is and what his mission was. But even still, I have to wonder, did the light from the mountaintop shine through in them? For the father in desperate need of healing for his child, did the light crack through, crack through them? For the throngs of the blind, the crippled, the left out, did their compassionate concern give them a glimpse behind the veil of who God was, of the God who holds them closest to God's own hearts? The disciples' descent down the mountaintop, their leaving of the thin place, meant that now for others, all the light wasn't on the other side. We may not be able to live on the mountaintop. We may not be able to build real estate on holy ground. But the light, the love, and the presence of God we experience there now lives within us. We carry that with us as we walk back down the mountaintop. And we become beacons of light and love for others. We can't stay on the mountaintop because the light and the love of God has other places to go. It needs to shine out through us. So when we make that journey back down the mountain, back to our ordinary, everyday lives, where we show up for those who are homeless or hungry, where we join in those struggles of solidarity for justice and equity, where we sit beside those who are burdened with grief. Wherever we go, whenever we descend from the mountaintop, it means that all the light isn't on the other side. Thanks be to God. Amen.